Welcome back to the Melius Performance Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Phillips. Dr. Andrew Phillips is from Monash University in Melbourne, but we're not here to talk about his work in the area of sleep and neurology. We're actually here to talk about his experience or his interest as a fan in formula one andrew runs a very successful and popular blog called f1 metrics which you can find on twitter or just by searching f1 metrics at wordpress.com andrew and i in this episode discuss lots of things about formula one andrew has a background in physics he's done a phd in physics and neurology at the um University of Sydney. Uh, he was also at Harvard Medical School for a number of years before coming back home to Australia, where he now works at Monash University uh, since uh, 2017. However, as I said in this episode, Andrew and I discussed more about Formula One. We discussed things like um, what how much is the track got to do with the success of a Formula One team or driver, the car, reliability, the history, how good of a uh, how good is a driver performing that season? How much do the tires have to play into it? What about pit stop strategy? What about the age of a driver? Is younger better? Is older better? We discussed this and lots more all about Formula One, including the F1 practice, qualifying and the race, and some of Andrew's thoughts on the season 2021 coming up. This was a brilliant episode um, to talk about the mathematical application uh, to Formula One. Um, obviously, if you're a fan, you will really like this. But even if you're not a fan, there is some interesting insights here from a mathematical perspective onto a real-life example of sport. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, as always, follow us at meliasconsulting.com.au. You can follow me on Instagram at sleep4perform. You can contact me at ian.dunican at meliasconsulting.com.au. sound can only mean one thing motorsports if anybody is an f1 fan out there you might want to listen to this one today because we're joined by the uh w- what would you call yourself a, like a kind of a a jeweler by functional scientist andrew you are not only um active in the sleep world around biomimic modeling and sleep and so on but you're also an f1 nut let's be honest yeah <laughs> By by day, I'm a scientist. Uh, By (laughs) night, I run an F1 analysis blog. An F1 analysis blog. Right. So that's a kind of a weird intro um, to start (laughs) off. But um, so you got those two two parts to your life that you do. So let's kind of rewind and go back to the start. Where did you you grow up, Andrew? And um, sort of how did you get into Formula One as a, as a, I suppose, as a, as a fan or a hobby or whatever? So I grew up in Australia um, and I became really interested in Formula One specifically when I was, say, uh, about nine or ten. Um, and I think what really cemented it for me was going to the Adelaide Grand Prix in 1993, yeah. um, which ended up being sort of a remarkable race for a few reasons. It was Ed and Senna's final F1 victory. Uh, it was Alain Prost's final race of his career as well. Um, and it was, you know, sort of... Michael Schumacher just starting to sort of come into his element as well. So it's, it was a really fascinating time to get interested in Formula One. Um, and from there, it's just sort of grown into to more of an obsession and, and more of an interest from an analysis standpoint over time. 
Yeah, so that's a, that's a long time to be kind of interested or involved in Formula One. When you went to that race, what, what gripped you about the race initially? Was it the sound? Was it the crowd? Was it the, the car? What was it? What was it that made you kind of go, wow, I love this? I mean, it was very visceral. Like uh, the, the sound of the cars back then was, you know, ear shattering. <laughs> you, you really yeah, needed yeah. a lot of ear protection to sit there for any period of time. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, as a physicist by training, the, the, the physics of the cars is just amazing. There's, you know, when you see it in person, the only, I guess, point of reference really is like a jet fighter, you know, the, the yeah. ability for them to maneuver and change direction and change their speed so quickly is so unlike anything you experience on the road in your own car uh, that it's really a marvel to watch, you know, seeing how the aerodynamics actually allow the cars to do all of this. That's really interesting because um, obviously you and I caught up for dinner back in around, I think it was February or March in Melbourne before the COVID thing. Uh, it might have even been the week of the Formula One. I think it was, yeah. I think it was, yeah. It sounded I, like I, it was on at that moment. Yeah, yeah. And it was supposed to be on. Obviously, it was cancelled. But the day before FP1, which is generally the Thursday, uh, I went down to the swimming pool that's just adjacent to the track. I can't remember the name of it, like the Melbourne Aquatic Centre or something <laughs> like that. And I, and I was swimming in the outdoor pool. And the kind of the fence of the F1 track goes right beside it. And I mean, like, right beside it, within, like, 10 feet. And I remember going out and just standing by the pool and going... Like my face was just like, what the fuck is this? This is crazy. And you know what? It actually reminded me of exactly what you said, Andrew. So from my time in the military, it reminded me of the sound of of low flying jet planes, like going boom, boom yeah. through the air. And I was like, oh my God. I got out of the pool. I, I swam a few cares and I got out and I rang my wife and I went, you are not going to believe this shit. If this is on this weekend, because <laughs> she was flying over I said, this is unbelievable. Like it goes through your chest. Like it's this, like, yeah. like you said, this visceral feeling. And I also said to her as well, when you're coming over, bring earplugs because your ears are going to be, there is, I cannot describe the noise. I said, it's, it's frightening and exhilarating at the, at the one time. So it's interesting you say about being like uh, fighter pilots. Yeah. Yeah, it is incredible. And, and there's also, of course, the human performance element. I think, you yeah. know, seeing people, you know, who are at the very top of their discipline put into such a challenging situation is, is just, you know, fascinating to watch. Yeah, look, I haven't seen a, an F1 live, obviously, because I, that was cancelled this year. But what's not, after seeing, after hearing that and getting some glimpses through the fence, what's not on TV does it no justice, does it? What's easier at home is tracking all the data. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think like the, 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 the camera angles, the data, looking at the strategy, what, what you think people should do is brilliant. But you're right. There's a lot missing. The sense of speed is not really there on TV either. Yeah, the sense of speed. just looks yeah. completely different in person. Yeah, I find that um, martial arts is the same as well. If you watch like, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big UFC fan. If I watch a fight at home, it's great for like, you know, looking at the metrics. Mm. It's great for the angles. Cricket's kind of the same as well. Even yeah. rugby is yeah. the same. But there's this, you're going for a different experience when you go and you watch it live, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think overall, like now, probably being a little bit older and a bit more kind of, you know, getting that kind of out of me of going to events, I'm probably more likely now to sit at home and watch events than I am <laughs> after, I've, after I've seen them once or twice. I'm kind of like, because I like that kind of... You've had the experience. Well, I had the experience, the peace and quiet, yeah. the big TV at home, all the metrics, and now with different apps and stuff like Kale, you can pause it and like, you know, like you can yeah. come back yeah. to it and stuff like that. You know, so. I know exactly what you mean. And there are definitely a few bucket list tracks in F1 for me that I absolutely want to see someday, like Belgium, Monaco. Um, but the rest of the time, I'm, I'm quite happy watching it on TV. So what, why are there bucket list tracks for you, Andrew? What's the, what's, what draws you to those? 
Uh, the, well, they're just such classics, you know. They're historical tracks. They're they're beautiful, cha- challenging tracks for the drivers. You know, Belgium has an incredible incredible amount of elevation change. It's a really b- beautiful location for an F1 track. Mm. Monaco, maybe not the greatest racing at Monaco. It's almost impossible to overtake. Um, but seeing the drivers navigate, you know, what is truly a street circuit with very little margin for error, I, I think, would be incredible in person. Yeah, so yeah, it's interesting to talk about that because I think like a, I'm I'm only a fan for the last couple of years, but I think at places like Monaco, the race is won and lost in like the qualifying, unless Absolutely. there's some major yeah. like you know engine failure. But that's where it is. It's the it's a practice in the qualifying where the where the the race is really really won or lost. You know. So Andrew, you said you had a background in physics. Did you you do an undergrad in physics? Yeah, so I did my undergrad in physics. Um, I, I was fairly convinced I was going to be a theoretical physicist, uh, and then I got very interested in the brain. So my my PhD was really in physics in complex systems, but it was about modeling the brain. Um, and I, I got very interested in sleep and circadian rhythms, and that sort of became the the main focus of my PhD and and all of my subsequent uh, research. Um, but it really did start on the quantitative side, maths and physics. Okay. So people like you are what I call real PhDs. Like, <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like people like me in the chronobiology world that do this applied stuff is like, that's like basic, but when you start looking at physics and you start getting into maths, it's like <laughs> stratosphere ahead. Do you Maybe, feel like, but, you know, you put me in a lab and I struggle. I struggle with pipettes and things. So <laughs> there are limits. <laughs> You should try going collecting data then from athletes because that's uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> people are like, what are you looking at? What are you on? All your science shit. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so you're you're more kind of you're more interested in, in the math that that sits behind, um, you know, kind of chronobiology, neurobiology. Is that correct? I am really. Yeah, that's that's the side that really excites me. I, I think though, you know, I'm a very applied kind of quantitative person you know i really like to see the translation into the real world and and for me the funnest thing is working directly with an experimentalist mm-hmm. you know someone who's gathering the data and we're working together we're, we're pitching ideas together and and what i bring to the table is the analytical skills yeah yeah so andrew a lot of people actually uh will talk about you know being bad at mathematics um and i find this across the world lots of people say like they don't like math the way it's the way it's mm-hmm. taught is very yep boring and dry and you know what's the use of it if i can count money and uh, you know i can do basic stuff multiply add subtract what more do i need to know what do you think is um the benefit of adults upskilling themselves in mathematics and if so how could they do it well well to your first point you know i think it helps to have a quantitative outlook on the world you know i think that is important for separating fact from fiction for understanding the world around you for understanding major challenges to our civilization things like climate change you know, I think having some basic quantitative understanding is actually really important for that. And, and certainly in the days of coronavirus, mm. you know, understanding what exponential growth means is an important uh, important sort of conceptual basis for seeing your world around you. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there, there are some problems with the way mathematics is taught. I, I, think, I think a lot of people are not actually bad at maths, but, but have been intimidated by it and have been intimidated by the way in which it's taught. And often those people rediscover later in life you know, in the, in the absence of sort of the stressful classroom situation that they're perfectly capable of learning these skills. I see it a lot with the, for example, PhD students I work with. You know, I sit in a school of psychology these days, so it's not physics, it's not maths people, mm. it's people with very little interest in that area. But, you know, when they're presented with the ability to use quantitative skills in their work, 
they've learned it very quickly as, as long as they see a, a clear application yeah, for it. Yeah. And I think that's the key, seeing the actual value of it in front of you rather than just seeing it in the abstract is what most people need. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Andrew. Yeah, so like when I was in, um, in high school, uh, I left school early to, to join the military, but I still ended up doing like year 12 exams whilst in the military. And I just barely passed maths, barely passed it, right? And so one of my biggest fears going into even doing my undergrad later on and even doing postgrad and particularly for my PhD was the math side, like the stats, the statistical yep. analysis, and it ended up actually being probably one of my favorite parts and probably one of the most interesting areas that I still need further development in and one of the areas that I still like to look at. And I think it's exactly what you said. There was no intimidation of an asshole teacher like breathing down your neck, you know, you know, 2x minus y equals. I'm like, what the, what the, like, this has no, this has no relevance to my life. You know, I understand that maybe a theory, but show me how it's applied in some sort of like application in the real world. And I may have been able to have some tangible outcome to it. But when I went into my PhD and I was like, right, I have this data from this group of athletes. And I remember observing that for this period of time. And that's what this means. It also started clicking. And it was really, it was really fun because you're actually now starting to see the story unfold from what you had been doing. So I think you're dead right. I think if we had more, you know, sort of um, practical applied, yeah, tangible exactly. things, it would be far more fun to, to learn. It's hard to capture in a classroom, but I think that's really what needs to happen. You, know, you need more authentic challenges, really. Yeah, one of the things I've been kind of just, I know we're going slightly off track here, I will come back, but one of the things I've been thinking about the last couple of years around education is that I'd like to see more integration of, of subjects. Like, for example, why can't we, you know, combine subjects? So if we get a group of people that are really interested, let's say, you know, an accountancy, business, leadership change, put them together in a group, maybe for two or three hours once a week or even once a month and say, right, you guys got to start a business. This is the books. This is the accountancy. Work out ROI on capital. Bring these people this way. Or people that are more like physics, maths, like bring them and, and, and gather some subjects together as opposed to looking at them in isolation. Because if you're running a business, for example, you're going to have, you're going to need those some manner of analytical skills. You're going to need to understand economics, accountancy, but even to a certain degree, you're going to have to understand, let's say history and, and English to be able to write a report or yeah. to convey a point, a point across to, you know, as part of change management. So I'd like to see more of those integration. And I think as you get older and you leave school and, you know, you do different things. You do see lots of integration of different subjects and you're drawn from different fields. But at school, it's kind of like, sit here for 45 minutes, bell rings, cut the next one. Everything is just really simply cut, but no one actually talks about the integration. The, yeah, um, completely. The kind of, nearly the kind of, I'd say the junior polymath approach to stuff doesn't really yes. exist. So that's the end of my rant on education. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so, a good idea. <laughs> right, we'll start that tomorrow. Um, so, Andrew, um, when you talk about mathematics and, and the brain and so on, can can all of these things, can we assert uh, or apply a mathematical value to anything we see in the world? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, that, that's sort of the, the basis for physics, right? That we can build a model to describe any type of phenomenon. Mm. And those models are going to be of varying degrees of complexity and value. You know, we, we may have a very simple model that really just captures certain key phenomena and doesn't get other things right. Or we may have a very detailed model where we're trying to fully describe what we're seeing in front of us. Um, 
So, and I think that applies, you know, well beyond just physics, you know, beyond atoms, beyond chemistry. We can also apply it to much more complex things, including sport, you know, including the performance of the whole brain. And then you start to really get into the topic of complex systems, where you you really try to give up on modeling what is the actual individual basis. You know, when, when we're talking about modeling results in F1, we're not talking about trying to model every atom in Lewis Hamilton's body. Right, we're going to try to boil it down into what are the key predictors, you know, what are, what are the key factors that we think are predictive of particular outcomes. Um, and that's often the approach taken for other complex systems as well, such as the brain. You know, we, can, we can't usually go down and model every single piece of it, but we can model some of the larger scale behavior of the brain and, and some of the uh, sort of performance or other outputs from the brain uh, in terms of relatively simple equations. Yeah. So when your blog, Andrew, is called F1 Metrics, that's correct? And that's a blog that you produce um, weekly. Or well, not, not weekly, no. every, every few months. Every, oh, every few months. Um, because when you don't produce it, people think you've been, you know, I think I've died. killed, yeah. you've been taken yeah. away by Mercedes or something like that. So well, let's get that out of the way. You're still alive. I'm still you're, alive. You're not in cahoots. You're not, compa- you're not paid by McLaren or F1 or anybody, are you, to produce this blog? There's no. no, no I've had so. some talks with some teams, but I'm not receiving money not from receiving. any of them. Okay, so. We want to just make sure that's out there because with the recent stuff that goes on in America about yep. war fraud and fake news and all that, <laughs> we just want to make sure we're clearing the deck. No, there's no me. money. I have received no money from the blog. It's all purely a passion project. Passion project. So, Andrew, you sit down, right? We're on the, we're near, towards the end of the 2020 season now. We've got the turkey race on tonight. Yep. Not the turkey race. Sorry, the race in yep. Turkey, not a turkey race. <laughs> that wasn't. I wasn't trying to be funny there. But we got that race on tonight, right? You're sitting back looking at that race. You got 20 cars on the grid, 10 teams, 20 drivers. Yep. What's all the variables that you stack up and you go right? These are all the things I'm going to look at to make a prediction on how this te- who's going to win this race or what's going to happen or who's got the best output. Kind of. That's a big open question, but how, what do you look at and how do you... Okay, it's, the, it's a big question, but there's a few things we can look at straight away. So first thing is the form guide, right? We know who's typically winning this season and that's Mercedes. So short of anything strange happening, it's going to be a Mercedes that wins the race. However, then we might think of other factors that could, that could influence the outcome. Um, you know, one is reliability of the cars. You know, even the best cars can break down sometimes. So there is a chance that will happen. Like first we can last week. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we can look at the track characteristics. So there are certain tracks that are more favorable to uh, teams with a strong power unit. Uh, other uh, tracks that are more dependent on good mechanical grip, for example. Uh, the Mercedes is pretty good across the board. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's not going to make a huge difference in this case. But, you know, often in other seasons, we do have cars that are particularly favored at one type of track over another. And so that can be a really important thing to factor in. Uh, weather is another major factor we might consider. You know, most races are dry, but when it rains, it can scramble up the order. And there are particular drivers who are much stronger under wet conditions and dry conditions. Uh, Lewis Hamilton being one, Max Verstappen being another. Drivers who really excel in the wet. Um, the other thing we might also consider is tyres. So tyres these days are such an important performance factor in F1 hasn't always historically been the case but but these days how a particular car works on the compounds of tire that have been assigned for that track can have a huge impact you know certain Mm -hmm. cars for example may degrade the tires too quickly if they're on softer compounds and so that can impact their race performance and for those people not familiar with formula one andrew there's generally the following type of tires 
at each race they'll have a different compound from Pirelli and it'll be yeah. either a yeah. soft a medium or a hard soft obviously doesn't last that long or x amount of laps and Pirelli will say at the start this this soft tire is predicted to last 20 laps the hard tire is predicted to last 40 laps for example and then you might and then you'll have a wet tire or a slick tire and then that will help determine the number of pit stops in a race exactly right yeah and the tires are, I mean, they're more an entertainment factor than a performance factor these days, really. <laughs> I mean, that, that's basically the pressy of it. You know, Pirelli is told, we want tires that will produce two-stop races. So engineer them, please. <laughs> so it's their job really? then to come up with tires with mm. a particular performance separation, with a particular number of laps they will last. And that's actually quite difficult to predict in advance. And if you get it slightly wrong, you've got a very boring one-stop race where nothing happens. Um, you know, the most interesting races are the ones that are sort of on a knife edge, you know, where the one stop versus the two pit stop strategy are very finely poised and it's not clear going into the weekend what is the best strategy. Um, you also sometimes see races like this if the free practice sessions get cancelled for whatever reason or they get rained out. The teams then go into the race not actually knowing what's the best strategy. And so you get teams hedging their bets, gambling on different strategies, and that in itself can lead to a very interesting race. Um, but these days, you know, if they wanted to, they could easily manufacture a tyre that would last the entire duration of the race. Um, but they don't. They, they intentionally manufacture them to degrade quickly so as to create pit stops, so as to make for more interesting mm -hmm. racing. So in a, in a race weekend, again, for people who are not familiar, you got FP1, uh, free practice one, which is, I think, about 90 minutes, free practice two, um, which is, is that 90 minutes or 60 minutes? Mm -hmm. 90. 90 as well. And they yep. will happen on the on the first day. So like today's Friday, it'll happen today. Be two of those separated by a break. Tomorrow, then you have FP3, which is 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have qualifying a few hours after that. And then the race on the third day. So it's basically a, a three day event. There's been some adjustments this year. Uh, exactly. Changes, but generally, that's how it, how, it, how it rolls. And then that free practice is about kind of working out the kinks in the car, aerodynamics, yep. what's the best, what's the best tire, what's the best way to take a corner, you know, where they can go fast, where they can go slow basically yep. you know what's, exactly. what's happening how do we so these days happen? you know the, the teams these days have incredible simulators you know they have incredible amounts of sort of in-house testing so they, they know their own equipment pretty well these days but the first practice session is really about dialing in the car getting the right setup for the conditions you know they already know roughly where they should be but often it requires some tweaking free practice two tends to be sort of longer runs you know it's in the afternoon it's a similar time of day to the race uh, and so it's a good time to sort of test out race strategies once you've got the right setup. So that's usually figuring out, you know, what's going to be the tire compound strategy for the race. And that's the key session if you're trying to forecast the uh, the outcome of the race. It's usually where I will train my attention anyway, looking at those long, uh, those long runs on the same tire, seeing how, you know, how are the times sort of falling off as the tires degrade? What is the average lap time? And of course, you have to kind of make a guess when you're doing that at what fuel load the car might be running. Um, so teams can potentially kind of mask their performance if they want by running more fuel or less fuel than they typically would under the race conditions. So it's a little bit of a, a tricky art to read the results of free practice too, but it tends to be the best session for forecasting the race results. Free practice three is usually about really setting up for qualifying. You know, it's just before qualifying, it's getting the cars set up for that kind of final run, um, you know, exploring the limits of the car. And uh, then, of course, qualifying is set the fastest time you can, so you'll start as close to the front as possible in the race. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I want to jump actually to a question on qualifying because I want to ask you this. Yeah, sure. What, what do you think about 
you know, obviously being an armchair expert at home that doesn't drive, you know. Uh, if I go 65 in my car, taking a corner hard, I think I'm great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about qualifying changing its format? One of the things I was thinking about last week was watching it was, you know, cars get caught up in traffic. You've got this three-phase approach to qualifying, you know, yep. Q1, yep. Q2, Q3. Cars often get caught up in traffic. They don't get out of pits or some sort of game happens, whatever. What do you think about cars just having wouldn't have no three phases and just cars going out unimpeded by other cars, not looking for drag and just saying, right, the fastest lap you can set, you've got three, three laps to do. You can do them within this half hour period. You nominate a window, no other cars on the track or you're separated by at least a kilometer or two kilometers go. And the fastest those three times is determines the starting grid. Wouldn't that be a fair way to do it as opposed to all this bullshit games that gets played in qualifying? Qualifying is becoming like a mini race nearly. Yes, there have been a variety of qualifying formats tried over the years. Um, One a while back was probably similar to what you're suggesting where people would do individual hot laps. They would go out and they'd each have a turn individually. So there'd be no issue of traffic or anything would be, what's the best single lap you can do? Completely clear track. Um, I think there is a lot of appeal to that one. You know, it means for one thing as a viewer, it's a hundred percent action. You know, you don't get these long periods of downtime when nobody's doing anything. And then this frenetic period at the end where everyone wants to sort of exploit the best possible track conditions. Um, There are downsides to that format as well. I mean, track conditions do evolve. And so whoever gets to go last is generally at an advantage. And you can also get wacky things happen. Like if it rains near the end of the session, anyone who's going near the end is completely screwed. Um, but, I mean, you could argue that those add entertainment to the sport. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. We do have random factors in other areas in the sport too. I certainly wouldn't be against that type of format. Where I probably draw the line is when we start talking about things like a randomized grid or a reverse grid, Yeah, yeah. you know, things that are really just designed to spice it up. For me, that begins to feel a little bit artificial. Um, and I don't think F1 is purely just about creating the most action per second of watching as possible. I don't think that's what the sport is about. I think a lot of the appeal in F1 is a slow burn. You know, it's a, the development of strategies across the race, and it, it does require watching the sport for a while to really get the most out of that. Mm. But that's what the sport has historically been, and it's, it's one of the big appeals to the sport, that it is it's quite a cerebral activity, you know, maximizing the performance in all of these areas, and it's not easy to do. It's, it's not something that turns up a different winner every weekend um, because it's difficult to win. Yeah. Yeah, I'm look. I'm not into cars at all, really per se. I'm not like a you know a petrol head or a ma- looking at cars and talking about engines and reliability and all that. But I'm into what you're talking about: variables, strategy. It's a bit like test cricket. You're settling in for a three-day event and you're seeing how things evolve from FP1 through to qualifying, through to the race, and then within the race, the start, the middle, the pit stop strategies. You know what's going to yeah. happen, the weather, all those variables, and then at the last part of the race as well, which we've seen a lot this year, where the last ten laps, like it's like it's like another race, you know that occurs, yeah. you know. Or yeah. we've had a few red flags. It's like these mini races within a race, and you're just sitting there going, "What's going to?" happen next like it's, it's exactly yeah but i think what's beautiful is when that happens organically you know there are other motorsports disciplines nascar most notably that have kind of tried to you know randomize the sport on purpose you know like throwing safety cars or cautions um strategically at certain times to mix up the race which is you know for me that would be going too far <laughs> yeah 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 so andrew um so far you haven't really actually mentioned people 
right? Yes. Uh, you haven't mentioned the driver, and I'm sure lots of engineers would like to get rid of drivers and just have some sort of like automated car that goes around, uh, auto, auto, F, auto GP or something. <laughs> but, um, how much do you think the driver plays in part of Formula One, if any? I mean, the driver is definitely important, and you can see that this season. You know, compare Verstappen's points tally to Albon's or compare Hamilton's to Bottas's or Leclerc's to Vettel. You know, these are drivers in virtually identical equipment getting very, very different results. You know, we've got Verstappen often even challenging for wins, Albon usually nowhere near a sniff of a podium. So it's clearly an important performance factor. And you also see that in the way teams spend money. You know, for a top driver, they might be spending $40, $50 million a year. Um, now, think of that as their total budget, you know, for a top team is about 500 million or about half a billion per year, which is an, an extraordinary amount. I think people outside of F1 are always absolutely stunned when they hear these numbers that each of the top teams is spending half a billion a year, meaning the whole sport's sort of a two plus billion dollar enterprise. Um, but, you know, clearly they value the driver. You know, the, the top teams are putting usually 10% or more of their budget toward the driver. Um, and that's because there is additional performance to be gained there. You know, they couldn't put that same money into, say, aerodynamic development and gain the same amount of time. So that's the right place to put the money. Um, in terms of, you know, if we're going to try to put percentages to it, you know, my model would suggest it's somewhere around sort of 30 to 40% driver. Really? That high? Um, yeah. It, it does vary historically. So th this is fitted across all of F1 history. Um, and there have certainly been times when, the car has been less of a performance differentiator. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly big performance differentiator today, but I would still estimate probably around 30% driver. Yeah. But, but Andrew, the, the, the experts online would say that the driver doesn't matter. It's about 2%. Like, you know, these experts that, like on Twitter, and I know people would comment on your blog that your blog is wrong and that, you know, that they could do a better model in Excel <laughs> than you, even with a PhD in, in this area. But anyway, that aside, sarcasm included. Uh, I'm very surprised that it is that, is that much because lots of people like this year will talk about um, you know, the change in drivers. Like I, I come across a lot of people and I, and, uh, and I talk about F1 and they go, oh yeah, I used to watch it, but got sick of it because it's just Lewis winning the whole time, you know, and like him or love him, they'll be like, oh, whatever, they'll say things about him, just go, oh, it's just boring because it's just Mercedes, Mercedes, Mercedes. And then people will go like, if they got maybe, you know, like a George Russell, a young, good driver and point to Mercedes, what could he do, you know, because Williams is right down the back end of the grid. Right. So do you think, are you able to isolate who is a good driver? And I think that's a good example actually with, with George, like he's done fairly well this year. I think he's had some unlucky issues, obviously, in, in some of the races. Not not to mention, like he, I think he's a really nice guy. He's a young kid, really articulate, speaks yeah, seems well. Seems really promising. I think even if he doesn't have a career in F1, he'll have a great career in commentary as well. He's really good. Um, whereas Lando is like a bumbling kid. And I really like Lando. He makes me laugh a lot, but he's like a 14-year-old, you know, carrying on with a skateboard. Like he's just hilarious. But... I think he's good for the sport, Lando. Oh, I think he's great. Like we love him. Like I, I for me, like kind of people at the start of becoming an F one fan, people were like, "Well, what team do you support?" And I was like, "Not really, watch it." But I actually was attracted to McLaren for that reason. One of yes. being the kind of a New Zealand team, so uh, you know, location wise, probably near Australia. Two, um, I really liked watching Lando as an eighteen year old kid just bumbling along, full of energy. 
you know, bring it to it. But I also like, I actually like a lot of that younger generation because they're very positive, enthusiastic. You see how Gasly was so excited this year when he, when he won. And I don't get that feeling from some of the older drivers. It feels like, oh, just another day in the office, you know? Where when Gasly won, like he was just sitting on the ground like a kid going, you could see in his eyes, he was like, I fucking can't believe what one is. This is fucking unreal. Like, and it was such joy and energy to watch, you know, because generally it's on so late here. The minute it's finished, you know, the rest, like, go through checker flag. It's, you know, Lewis or Bottas. I'll just go straight to bed because I have to early on Monday morning. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just go, I'm, I'm going. But that night I was just sitting there watching Gazi like for 20 minutes because it was, it was, it was spectacular. It was, it was unbelievable. Like, you know, so, um, you know, my usual rambles there again, but do you think if you took like a, a George Russell and put him into a Mercedes or a Red Bull or one of those top three cars, or even a McLaren or a Renault who's doing quite well this year, would George really perform exceptionally well in a, in a good car? I think it'd be, yeah, I think it'd be a similar level to Botas, you know, maybe a little below there, but certainly he'd be top three in the championship. I think there's no really? question. Yeah, about that. I, you know, I mean, take a driver who's sort of near middle of the pack, and and they're going to do pretty exceptionally well in a Mercedes. Now, that's not saying the driver means nothing, right? They're unlikely to touch Hamilton in the same car, and I think one of the reasons that you know things look so predictable, you know, once the team becomes dominant and just keeps winning, and you know, fans do get kind of tired of this, is because you've you've actually got a correlation between team performance and driver performance. The best teams can also afford the best drivers. Yeah, yeah. So you've got the problem <laughs> now of yeah. Lewis Hamilton, who, if not the ultimate driver in F1, is is near enough, is also in the ultimate car in F1. So what's going to beat that? You know, it, it takes it takes bad luck, really. That's the only yeah. thing that can really stop that kind of thing from from winning. So, you know, that's that's the real issue that you've you've got not only the best cars but also the best drivers paired together. Um. But, the, you know, the driver does still matter. You put the best driver and the worst driver in the same car, and there's going to be a good time separation in qualifying. You know, we've seen plenty of teammate matchups where the, the average difference has been about a second. And that's more than the difference you see between many of the teams. Now, between the best team and the worst team, you're typically looking at more like two to three seconds in F1, just to give you sort of a, yeah, yeah. You know, a, a comparable estimate. That's per lap as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, which is really not that much. Like we were watching this a few weeks ago, and we we're saying like from the top to the bottom they were separated by two seconds. And if you were to draw it out on a bell curve, mm-hmm. for two seconds, like it's like you know they're so tightly distributed. Like really, they're so yeah. like tightly. They, they really are. Two seconds yeah. is is absolutely nothing. And people then will shit on Williams and go, "Oh, the Williams car is shit." Blah blah blah. It's only two second, two seconds. Over like a 5K distance, like in a lap being like, you know, four and a half Ks or whatever it might be. Yep. Two seconds. And people are like going crazy. I mean, like it's I, still an absolute spaceship, right? Like exactly. compared to literally any car outside of F1 in the world. And it's just. Yeah. <laughs> you see, what I'd like to do, Andrew, here's, here's my thing I'd like to do. I'd like to do this for F1. I'd like to do it as well for probably swimming and athletics. I'd like to have a track inside the track. So I'd yeah. like to have. F1 racing, and then I'd like to have two middle-aged, overweight men racing in two, um, you know, Honda CRVs on the inside, 
to see how long it takes them to do the yes. you know 62 laps right that's the, that's that's another part because everybody thinks like they're excellent the other thing i'd like to do as well as in swimming when people go oh they could have went faster i'd like in the olympics to have nine lanes for swimmers and then put someone like me in lane number 10 and go right this is the 1500 we're going to swim this they're finished in 12 or 13 minutes whatever it is and that takes me like 25 minutes on my best day to do that and i'm burnt to a crisp that's what we need to show people the relative Agreed. speed of some of these things. I think will be interested. <laughs> so, um, Andrew, with um, using Lewis Hamilton as an example, is Lewis, do you think, the best driver, or has he just timed his career really well to maximize? You know, he seems to be kind of very good at picking really good teams um, in his career. Um, and you've seen some other drivers, we'll say like Sebastian Vettel, um, Kimi Raikkonen, another one of my favorites, um, you know, go to lower team. Well, Vettel not really going to a lower team, but to Ferrari, they're not doing well. But, and, you know, people changing out of the top teams and then they don't do so good. So is it is it just as much about the management of the driver and how they manage their career as well? Is that like the kind of, the, they get those well, man- Management, I think, is critical. I mean, straight off the bat, I'll just say Hamilton's one of the all-time greats. You know, there are many people who will look back at his legacy and say he was the greatest of all time. And and I think that will be a valid position to hold. Um, Even better than Schumacher. Yeah. And the, the reason I say that is, you know, in terms of stats, he's going to be, he's going to have pa- surpassed Schumacher very soon on, on pretty well every metric. Yeah. You know, polls are done, wins are done. Assuming he hangs around another year and Mercedes wins, which is a, a pretty good bet, <laughs> uh, that he'll have his eighth title and he'll surpass Schumacher there. And where people really sort of come down hard on Schumacher was his sportsmanship. You know, there, there was always this question mark over Schumacher, the, the fact that he was willing to do these kind of dirty tactics to win. Um, you know, when championships were on the line, when wins were on the line. And I can't say we've ever really seen that from Hamilton. You know, Hamilton is a very above board, very clean racer. Um, so if it comes down to that, you know, you've got these two incredible drivers of the era with similar stats, perhaps even a little in Hamilton's favour, but Hamilton also is the cleaner driver. I think that's important for a driver's legacy, and it's always been a little bit of an asterisk on Schumacher's career. Um, so, that, you know, I'll just say straight up, you know, Hamilton is clearly one of the all-time greats. Um, whether he's the absolute best driver on every weekend in the sport these days, I think that's a little less clear. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are some other rising talents. I think Max Verstappen in particular... Yeah, yeah really is you know at that level these days and if you were to put them in equal machinery we would have a hell of a battle between them um but no absolutely you know hamilton's benefited from some of the decisions in his career it's you know it's hard to think of a driver who's been you know as fortunate in in the path that they've set and and you know that is that's not just luck you know some of that is good decision making it's good people management but there is an element of luck as well you know, and I guess the obvious contrast here is Fernando Alonso, you know, another driver of the same era who many would say is of the same level as Hamilton. And yet his career statistics are nowhere near the same level. Mm. You know, two titles, you know, his wins dropped off sort of, you know, well early in his career because he just went down the wrong path. You know, his move to Ferrari was ill-timed. His move to McLaren was ill-timed. And along the way, he burned a lot of bridges too. So... You know, it's sort of a clear contrast between the two. Had they been given equal machinery every year of their career, you'd expect Hamilton and Alonso to probably have pretty similar career stats 
overall. This is interesting, actually, Andrew, because you touch on something here about kind of, you know, independent of the driver is kind of, I would say, I would call it like behavior. Mm. I think that's where Lewis loses fans. I think sometimes on when they hear, and obviously like F1 and, and the commentary put out very specific sound bites off the radio. I'm, right. I'm sure that like drivers go crazy the whole time. But I feel like when you watch Lewis or you listen to Lewis, and I think he is a great driver, I just can't, like sometimes he's just so... I don't know, contradictory to himself. It drives me crazy. Like when the race isn't going well, he starts crying and moaning on the radio and, you know, and then, but when it goes, if he gets it back, then he's, he's, his mood swings rapidly on on the radio type of thing, which I don't think people like. Whereas if you look at Ricardo, I think he got a five second penalty there for track limits a while ago in a race. And he went, sorry about that. I'll just drive faster. Had that kind of more stoic approach. Like, you know, like, I'm sorry, I'm just going to get on with it. Like just, you know, and, and even Norris is, for as much as Norris giggles away, you know, Norris was like, they were on the radio, like giving him this big, like two minute information. He's like, don't talk to me when I'm racing. And I think what he was referring to was not being on the track, but like he was trying to overtake somebody. He was in yes. this kind of precarious, he was caught within, it's someone up his ass type of thing. He was trying to overtake somebody and they were giving him this info. They should have waited for a better time to convey that info. And Norris was just like, stop talking to me when I'm racing. And then was like, you know, right, what's wrong? So I think Lewis gets a lot of, I think, hair for that. And then also... Yeah, I mean, it's a common criticism. You see it, you know, in social media and things. Yeah, I think it's interesting what the... Just being able to hear the radios has done for the sport, you know, because it wasn't always the case. Yeah, I'm sure if you could hear Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost back in the day, you oh, know, I there would have been quite a bit of whining yeah, over yeah. the radio. Yeah. We never saw that element. Yeah, and Verstappen got picked for it there a few weeks ago as well for saying something about Lance Stroll. And, you know, and I think... I think it's yeah. unfair. I'd yeah. say guys go crazy on the radio, go ballistic, you know. Um, and I just think like that sometimes, you know, understanding the the driver is is an interesting area because like like I was saying with Lewis as well. Like on, I'm not picking on Lewis Hamilton, but just as an example, like he'll get on a Instagram post and talk about climate change, but then the next post will be him getting on a private jet. It's really like like it's really contradictory. Or he gets gets in an F1 car and like it's just. You know, it's, it's just, it's interesting in terms of different personalities around the grid and what goes on and who likes who and who doesn't. Oh, that's part just, of the circuits of it all, right? It's, exactly. It's and I just think, fascinating I, to watch. I just think sometimes like with some drivers, like they could garnish a, a heap more fans from this if they just maybe change their behavior. But I'm sure a lot of people are saying that about me as well. So I do, <laughs> <laughs> I do want to ask you about drivers in terms of, um, you mentioned Fernando Alonso, like coming back. Yes. Fernando is a bit of an older driver. Is he 40 or 40? Yeah, he'll be turning 40 next year. 40, yeah. 40 is really old. Um, <laughs> this mate that's 42. That's why I like Kibby Raikkonen. Um, so there you got like Fernando Alonso is going to be in the grid next year, coming back for another stint into Renault. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo is going over to McLaren. Mightn't be the best time move for Daniel, but anyway, uh, some interesting Ren- Reynolds, moves. Reynolds yeah. doing pretty good this year, but McLaren is going to a Mercedes power next year, so we'll see what yes. happens next year. So we'll see what happens there. But with Fernando coming back, Raikkonen coming back, you've got those guys, and then you've got people like Landon on the other end, 19, yep. 20 years of age, who basically weren't even alive when like Kimi yeah. started racing. <laughs> Crazy, you know, they could be their dad. How much do you think? age p- plays into it because we know like in things like combat sports or contact sports when you're younger you got better reaction time yes. ability to move and although they're not moving per se there is a lot of like g-force issues here with like next stability and and you know they have to be fit and healthy good core strength reaction time regulating their breathing stress levels and so on how much do you think that age plays into the driver's ability or is it a factor 
it's definitely a factor. You know, it's something I've modeled and found to be, you know, highly significant in explaining driver really? performance across their career. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting if you compare the age curve to other sports. Um, you know, there are some sports where performance carries on to quite an old age, you know, golf being one example. There yep. are plenty of golfers who've excelled well into their 40s. There are other sports, particularly, you know, high-impact combat sports, things like this, where performance tends to tail off much earlier. And you, you could explain that partly just as the toll on the body that, that's taken, you know, injuries yeah, yeah. accumulate over time. Um, F1 is sort of a, an intermediate case. You know, peak performance range is about 24 to 36. And either side of that, you, you do see big differences. Now, that's kind of an interesting range when you think about it. You know, I think a lot of people, when they think of F1, they think of reaction times. They think of, you know, very quick responses to things. And if you think of it that way, you'd expect the younger, the better, really, um, because your you know, reaction times are really just going down from about 20 onward. I, I think that's maybe not quite the right way of assessing F1. Um, you know, reaction time obviously is a factor. You know, there are times where it's critical, the start being one of them. Um, and in wheel-to-wheel combat with other cars is another. But actually, much more of it is about precision, is about management, and is about strategically running a race. You know, having a precise driving line is much more important than having a slightly shorter reaction time than somebody else. Being able to feel when the car is right at its limit of traction is more important, again, than having a slightly faster reaction time than someone else. Of course, if the car breaks loose and begins to to slide, then reacting quickly is important. Mm. But much more of F1 is about maintaining the car in a state where it's not quite losing control, but it is right, finally poised on that limit. And so the ability to feel that is actually much more important than the ability to catch it after you've overstepped the limit. If you're overstepping the limit all the time, you're not a good driver, or not at least by F1 terms. And so, you know, a lot of it is experience. A lot of it is learned over time, learning to be canny in a race, learning to develop that feel. And so I think that is why the age curve is relatively later in F1, why we've seen a lot of drivers excel well into their 30s. And even in some cases, drivers like Michael Schumacher, who've maintained a really excellent level into their 40s. Now, it's clear on the average that once you pass sort of your mid-30s, performance is beginning to tail off in F1. It's pretty subtle into the late 30s. Once you get to 40 and beyond 40, uh, there are quite large effects on driver performance. Um, so, you know, you'd expect with Fernando coming back that he's going to be facing some of that. You know, he's got a couple of challenges he's facing. One is simply age. The other is a lack of recent experience in an F1 car. Now, for a driver who's been away, he has been relatively active. You know, he's been competing in other series, in IndyCar, you know, doing other types of uh, racing events. So he's not completely out of practice. But an F1 car, the F1, you know, the challenge of F1 is unique. And, and that is going to cost some performance inevitably. So it's probably not going to be Alonso at his absolute peak that we're going to see, um, but you, you'd still bet for a pretty strong performance from Alonso. You know, you take a driver of that caliber, mm. uh, they're always going to deliver impressive results, even at 40. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, um, with the Formula One season, it's obviously very long and it's getting longer rather than more yes. races. Um I think the calendar came out the other day as a 22 or 23 races next year, like nearly basically one every two weeks. Mm. And then you've got like a summer break. And um, then you've got the end of the season, sort of, you know, December, January. And then we kick off again with Australia. I'm not sure whether Australian race is going to happen next March or not. But we will see. Calendar. <laughs> Don't know about that. I'm not booking any flights <laughs> after last year. Um, but obviously, we go to all these countries. We go to Australia, we go to China, we go to 
you know, Bahrain, we go all over the world. How much do you think travel and jet lag plays into this? Not only for the driver, but for the pit crews as well, who, you know, never kind of get mentioned in this stuff as well. Like they work so hard, you know, basically, you know, week on, week off, and they're just crazy. Um, and then back at the factory and running around and not getting driver pay, by the way. People think, like, no. well, I must be getting like millions. Like, I'm, I'm being lucky if these guys, you know, get, <laughs> make a good salary. Um, how much of those factors do you, do you take in, if any? So you're going into the Venn diagram intersection of my two main interests now. (laughs) Sleep, circadian rhythms, and Formula One. I think it is a really important factor, you know, especially with these sort of back-to-back races that are only, you know, one week apart sometimes, Hmm. or or even when they're two weeks apart. You know, it does require a lot of preparation to go across, say, eight time zones. We know that. We know the body doesn't naturally make those shifts very easily. And so it's necessary to follow carefully designed jet lag plans with light, being the key factor you know light is what sets the timing of our body's circadian clock and so correctly managing light is really what it's primarily about i know there are circadian experts involved in the sport um, that are helping to advise some of the teams so it is something that's at least taken seriously at the driver end Um, when it comes to all of the other personnel i don't know Um, you know they're they're usually flying in not to the same schedule as the driver you know, they're, they're, of course, flying by the cheapest possible economy seats and, and all of these things. They're not flying in in their private jet or something like this. So definitely a challenge for the pit crew. Um, and, and I did, you know, a couple of years back, I did do a quick analysis uh, just by myself looking at uh, pit stop times and found that, you know, races that were after a large time zone transition did tend to have um, more long pit stops uh, than, than races that were not is suggestive of you know more human performance errors because you know pit stops tend to be very short as we know they're very very fast in f1 they're all over in about three seconds but if anything slight goes wrong you know they can go a whole half second they can go a second they can go the race um and the as you know you know these are the crew that are not being paid as much um they're a performance area where nowhere near as much money probably goes as a driver and yet it can be race deciding mm. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting thing. And then obviously like um people have this idea that like if you if they race in Australia, that basically they all get on a big plane and then they go, right, the next race is in China, let's all fly to China, which may not be the case. They might you know, drivers yeah. are based in places like London, Monaco, they yeah. might have holiday homes in the US, wherever it might be. Yeah. And they might go there for a week or they might go on a holiday or they may have obligations for sponsors. They may be Certainly like, for not. drivers, many marketing That's, and yeah, sponsorship for, commitments. Yeah, yeah. For drivers might have to go to New York and, you know, like, you know, and do some modeling for Tommy Hilfiger like Lewis does or, or someone else, yeah. you know, and um, whatever it might be. Um, so you've got that happen as well. So it's not as simple as there might be constantly, you know, crisscrossing the world. And um, it's interesting because we just had a review published recently in the British Journal of Sports Medicine on, um, travel and jet lag interventions and the evidence is really bad like you know we had a big group looking at that and it's really bad on the interventions to minimize jet lag we have a consensus paper coming out in a few months as well that's just about to go in for publication um you know that basically what what's the things we could do to manage it but i think there's very little evidence around these interventions and there's very little evidence on performance and how it affects it i think the issue nothing in f1 on this agreed and i think the issue with almost all of these interventions for jet lag is compliance you know, we know yeah. from highly controlled conditions very well what is the effect of light. You know, we know exactly how to shift someone's circadian clock to a different time zone. 
that's been shown in the lab over and over again. (laughs) Exactly. Doing it out in the real world where, you know, the temptation to use light, the the ability to control light can be quite difficult. You know, that's the key. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people have this idea that they can just like get over jet lag. They can suck it up and, you know, I've heard all crazy strategies. Oh, if you just go and like, you know, run for an hour, you're no jet lag. And, you know, oh, I feel really good within the first day, but really their performance could be, you know, affected for two or three days because we're, we as humans are really bad at knowing how we react. Absolutely. You know? yeah. And people like and the, go like, oh, but look, I'm still fast. And I'll throw their hand down in front of me. And I'm going, how do you know? What's your baseline measure? Like you're not, you're not measuring yourself with any scientific validity or accuracy. Yeah. You might feel okay to walk around and you might feel okay, but you know, it's like, it's like with driving as well. People are driving around, you know, fatigued yep. and don't even know they are. So we are. No, it's easy to fool them. yourself. Oh yeah. There's a lot yeah. of science on that. And, yeah. and certainly in F1, you know, the margins are so small. You know, even if you're talking about a 2% improvement in performance, I mean, that's enough to make a big difference in that domain. Yeah. No, that's um, that's really interesting. Um, so we've got the driver edge, we've got the jet lag. I think I've hit all the points I wanted to talk to you about. This is like a this is a fanboy experience here. This is really great. I'm getting <laughs> all my questions answered here. All my uh, armchair um, theories are being put to bed here. Um, <laughs> it's really good. What else, Andrew, do you think we should consider when we're watching F1 about what would be the factors to consider in terms of prediction um, that we may not have covered. Is there anything else that we that could be we should consider? We talk, spoke about track, car, reliability, you know, history during that season, who's winning, who's not, the weather, the tires, pit stop strategies. We spoke a little about pit stop crew, driver edge, driver distribution, travel and jet lag. Is there anything else we haven't spoken about that might be of interest for people? There are other random factors like safety yeah. cars that, that oh, can yeah, really yeah, yeah. sort of change the course of a race very quickly. Um, now, they're, of course, difficult to forecast. You, yeah. you don't know when they're going to happen or why they're going to happen, but they are much more likely at certain tracks than others. And, you know, often if you're watching a race, you might be scratching your head wondering, you know, why on earth is this team employing this particular strategy? And there's seemingly no payoff in the end. You know, it seems like they just ran a slightly worse version of a strategy that that you would have proposed. And often the reason is because they're, they're considering the possibility of a safety car. And that if a safety car came in a particular key window of the race, it would completely turn the race for that car. And so that, that's one of those things where, you know, it, it's difficult to really appreciate until you've started watching F1 for a while, what's going on. Um, but, but once you start to see all of that, the complexity of the race and what's really going on strategically, it, it does add a lot of entertainment value. So when a safety car comes out, it's for an issue on the track. Something may have fallen off a car. Exactly. There might be a serious accident. Serious accident, whatever it is. When the safety car comes out, all the cars have to drive behind the safety car at a certain speed, is it? Or how is it determined? Exactly. So once they catch up to the safety car, they have to follow the safety car. And and even before that, they have to drive to a predetermined speed around the track. Uh, So what that means is you can get a cheap pit stop under a safety car. Because, you know, while you're spending time coming into the pit lane, stopping, coming back out, yeah, yeah, everyone else is moving slowly. They're not pulling as far ahead of you as they would normally under normal racing conditions. So if everyone else has already had their pit stop and then a safety car comes out and you get to do yours, you've lost less time than the others. And so you might jump positions to the front of the pack mm. just based on a well-timed pit stop relative yeah, yeah. to a safety car. Yeah. So it is a really important consideration, especially at some tracks that are, you know, very commonly have safety cars, and it needs to be built into the race strategy. Yeah, I, what on average is there a 
is there a safety car in every race in a, in a season or do you have like a graph that's do you have I, th- I think on that? average it's under one per race but there are some tracks where the the average is about one yeah and what about red flags, Andrew, where the race has been stopped? Because we've seen a few of those this year, which is tr- which is they're actually strong. quite uncommon. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's been an unusual season in that respect. Well, in many respects, but, yeah, yeah. but suddenly in that respect. <laughs> yeah, because we had one race. With what we had three starts. We had two red flags. So there was three That's right. yes. starts in the race. <laughs> yeah, that went on until about one o'clock in the morning. Here, I was like, oh man, I can't I have to go to bed. But this is too good. It was really good. Um, all right, Andrew. So we have um. The 2021 season looming. Mm. Um, obviously, there's the whole COVID thing, and you know, races may change, whatever. Yes, but we're starting to see a bit of driver movement now. Like we said, um, Ricardo's going over to McLaren. Fernando Alonso's gone in there. Vettel's going to Racing Point, which will become uh, Aston Martin, I believe. Yep. Um, got a few um, few driver movements there. A few seats still open. Um, what's your predictions on driver movement for next year, and who do you think is going to be um, one to watch for 2021 in terms of teams. Well, I love driver movement. Driver movement is the greatest thing because, <laughs> because it's like, it's like keeping up with the Kardashians for us. <laughs> it, it is, but it's you know it's so important in F1. You know, in every sport you you are ever a fan of, there will be arguments about who is the greatest of all time, um, and it's always hard comparing drivers between eras. In, in F1, it's hard to even compare drivers within the same era because they're all driving different cars. Yeah. You know, if someone beats someone else, you can always argue, well, they just had a better car. And so what driver movement does, it means we actually finally get to see certain drivers head-to-head and get a better picture of their relative abilities. So driver movement is just fantastic, both as a fan and especially as a modeler, <laughs> trying to figure out how different drivers rank relative to each other. So I think there are a few really interesting ones next year. I, I love that Ferrari's kind of gone this interesting gambit running Leclerc and Sainz, you know, mm. two drivers who don't have particularly decorated careers, but both have a lot of talent. And they're kind of gambling on youth a little bit there. I think that's going to be a really interesting one. Um, I think it's going to be a kind of unequal matchup in certain ways. Um, in terms of qualifying, Leclerc is absolutely phenomenal. You know, he's probably one of the fastest drivers over a single lap in the sport right now. Um, whereas Sainz doesn't have such a great great qualifying record. You know, he's been outmatched by Verstappen in qualifying, outmatched by Hulkenberg. And even last season, you know, he's pretty much level pegging with Norris, um, who was coming in as a rookie. So we know Sainz isn't a really top-line driver in qualifying. So you'd expect that qualifying battle to be quite one-sided in Leclerc's favour based on the form guide. Um, but in races, you know, that's where Sainz really shines. Um, and you might argue Leclerc isn't quite at the same level in races as he is in qualifying. There are still some sort of kinks in his uh, game that he needs to iron out, I think. You know, still this season, he's obviously dominating uh, Vettel in quite an impressive way, but th- there is scope for him to continue improving in races. So I think that's going to be an interesting matchup. And I think it's really going to help to clear up for the model, you know, what is Carlos Sainz Jr.'s real level? The model's always been a bit enamored of him. And I've never been totally convinced by the model's rating of him. I, I think it's perhaps a little inflated. So I think that one's going to really help to clear up mm. uh, that particular rating, gain extra certainty around his true level. Um, I think Ricardo Norris is going to be an interesting matchup. That probably going to be quite a close battle. You know, Norris will be going into his third season, and typically drivers have noticeable improvement across their first four seasons. Once they have about four seasons of experience 
according to the model, you don't really see further improvement from there, you know, adjusting for age. So, do you, do you think on that matchup, just on that matchup, do you yes. think Rick Daniel's been around a long time now in F1? Yep. He's a bit of a joker on the pack, right? He is, yeah. He takes the piss out of people. He's always playing practical jokes, as we know. Yeah, they'll be an entertaining pair, that's for sure. Yeah, hitting people in the balls. I'm telling yeah. you, if he, if he hit me in the balls, I'll tell you one thing, he wouldn't be, wouldn't be standing there. To, <laughs> did you ever notice he never hits Kimi Raikkonen in the balls? <laughs> ever notice that? True. Yeah, or or Verstappen, because I think they would punch him in the face. That's why. <laughs> you, know, you, you never see him doing shit to Raikkonen, you know? Even I'm afraid of Raikkonen. I'm bigger than Raikkonen. I'm not afraid of <laughs> But anyway, that's an interesting one. Do you think actually, though, in terms of, um, we'll say, culture and teamwork, will it work well? Or because Daniel is such a joker, is there an element there that he may start kind of maybe intimidating Norris or, I don't want to say bullying, but but more intimidation and kind of, you know, being a more senior driver? Is there a chance that would happen? Yeah, it'll be an interesting dynamic. You know, whenever you have this kind of matchup, there's a lot of uh, pressure on both drivers, right? Yeah. There's, there's pressure on Ricardo to demonstrate that he can beat a less experienced driver because if he can't do that, then he's he's not a top driver in the sport. And there's pressure on Norris to prove himself. You know, Ricardo is probably not at the level of, say, Hamilton or Verstappen, but he's not far off. You know, he's, he's one of the sort of top benchmarks in the sport. And, and he's so had a great compa- season this year with Renault. Exactly. So yeah. comparing favorably to Ricardo would be a huge boon to Norris's career. You know, if he could do that, top teams would be looking at him for a seat. You know, next time Ferrari or Mercedes needs another driver, he'd be on the list. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot riding on that comparison. Having said that, they've both, you know, generally gotten along fairly well with their teammates. Um, You know, obviously in the Red Bull pressure cooker situation between Verstappen and Ricardo, things got a little heated. But even there, it never deteriorated to the level we saw, say, between Weber and Vettel. Uh, in the same team. So I think they'll probably get along. I, I think they'll keep it fairly jokey. Um, but, you know, underneath that, it's a pretty serious yeah, uh, yeah. competitive comparison for both of them. Yeah. And in terms of Mercedes, do you think, um, I, I can't see Lewis ever retiring, to be honest with you. I think Lewis will be clinging onto that car when he's 67. But <laughs> what about Valtteri? Do you think Valtteri will stay in Mercedes or do you think he'll try and make a shift soon? I don't think he has many options. I mean, there's no better car for him to move to. Yeah. And I think Mercedes are very happy with the current arrangement. You know, in Bottas, they have a driver who's just not good enough to take it to Hamilton in a fight across a full season. But he is still good enough to generally get the results out of the car. Hmm. You know, he's generally there or thereabouts. You know, sometimes he does lose out to Verstappen, but it's not enough to ever really hurt them in the Constructors' Championship. So he's a very useful second driver for the team. And, and not enough of a threat to Hamilton to create pressure on Hamilton, to create psychological pressure, to create disputes within the team. Because that's inevitable when you get two actual top drivers in the same team and they're competing for titles. There will be arguments, there will be fights, there will be accidents. That, that always happens. Yeah. Andrew, I know you're a busy man. i got one more question for you before you go. Um, Absolutely. Is... Speaking of constructors and power units, so in power units next year, Honda will be leaving F1. Mm. Um, obviously, I don't know whether it was financially viable for them or what went on, but they will be departing. We have three manufacturers on the grid now, and in terms of power units, we got Mercedes, we got Renault, and we have um, Ferrari. Ferrari. Yeah, I nearly <laughs> forgot there. We have Ferrari, right? Across 10 teams. That leaves Red Bull, who has been you know, on the heels of Mercedes without a power unit for next year. We've got this great driver for Stappen who, like you say, could be one of the, the greatest drivers coming through. Yeah. 
So I, I think pissed, I'll just note, I, I, I think say, Honda before, have at least agreed. Before, sorry, before that, they, yep. did, they did piss off Renault last year. They did. Right? There's no way Mercedes is going to give them an engine with them clipping on their heels. There's no, no way Toto's going to give them an engine. That's, that's how, it, how it plays. They really pissed off Renault with Searle a few years ago. Um, Christian Horner, I think, really kind of cut his ties with Searle there in the media, which leaves them with Ferrari as an option. And I can't see Ferrari giving them an no. engine. So will we see a new power unit person come in, a power unit um, player come into, the, into F1, or will Red Bull develop their own? It's a good question. I mean, for now, it sounds like Honda is at least quite supportive of Red Bull continuing to use their power units and, you know, potentially giving Red Bull the IP they would need to, to keep running with the engines themselves if yeah. they were to. I just don't know, though. It's such a huge undertaking to develop a Formula One power unit. It, it's hard to see a team developing their own power unit that, that's not an enormous manufacturer such as Mercedes and managing to really take the fight to Mercedes. You know, th things are a little bit static right now with respect to power units. You know, Mercedes are the standard and it's really hard to see any other team coming up and beating them in that respect. Um, you know, Ferrari obviously were challenging them last year, but we know that now that was on the basis of some illegalities with how they're <laughs> running the power unit. Um, so legally getting to Mercedes level seems to be such an enormous challenge. And I think any other manufacturer is reticent to come in right now because it costs a hell of a lot to develop one of these power units. You know, you're probably talking around a billion dollars to get anywhere near competitive. Um, and then, you know, you're still probably not beating Mercedes. So something needs to change. You know, it's, at some point, the, the power unit formula needs to change or it needs to be made easier for entry for, for other competitors because it's not really healthy for the sport at the moment to have only one really clear winning power unit and then only two alternatives, one of which is never really going to be sold to a customer such as Red Bull. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is interesting to see. Yeah, this is why I like the sport. It's all the, it's all the circus around it, you know? It's not really the fact that I'm into cars. Like, I'm not going to be looking and going, oh, it's a great free eight, not, and we're just in there, blah, 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 blah. I'm not into that. I'm into the strategy around it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Agreed. The, the political intrigue is such a big part of yeah. the sport. It's interesting, yeah. It's really interesting. Um, Andrew, if people want to follow your blog and yes. they want to hit you up um, with any questions or if you take any of those, or how, how's the best way to get through to you for F1 metrics? Uh, so I have a Twitter account associated with that one. It's yeah. ajk.phillips at Twitter. AJK at Phillips. Yeah. AJK.phillips. Phillips at Twitter. Yeah. 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 And then you, your, your blog or website is called? F1 metrics. Dot com dot au or just dot com? Uh, it's at WordPress. Oh, at WordPress. Yeah. Ooh, look at you. Different. <laughs> <laughs> and you publish on there uh, periodically across the season. About I have. My, my activity goes up and down. It's been yeah. a little bit of a fallow 12 months just because real life has been so intense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, hoping to pick it up again soon. Definitely looking to put out a 2020 end of season report. And I've got some new projects in the works too. I've been starting to go back to, for example, old non-championship races. So back in like the 1950s and 60s particularly, about half the calendar used to be non-championship races that didn't actually count towards the championship but still involved most of the top drivers and teams. So it's potentially a really useful resource for getting a better picture of who were the best drivers in that era. Yeah. Excellent. Before you go, I want to tell you um, a mathematical joke. Yes. <laughs> 
place. So Billy Con- Billy Connolly has inspired me. So Billy Connolly, uh, one time in one of his stand-up routines, said about being at school, you know, as we were talking about school at the start of the podcast. And he said he remembers being in school and he was sitting in the chair and the teacher went to him, Connolly, what's the answer to that on the board? And Billy looked up and it was 2X plus 3Y equals, and it was a question mark. And Billy sat there and he looked at it and he stared at it and he was like, what? And he was like, Connolly, what's the answer? But sir, he goes, number, numbers and letters, he goes, fuck me. I didn't know you could add those together. I thought they were two separate things, <laughs> 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 which I still use today. But my stats joke that I developed during my PhD, this is what you know, three years um, led me to, is the following. Mr. X walks into uh, a nightclub. The bouncer says, you're barred. Mr. X says, that's mean. Okay. You like that one? That's good. That's my only stats joke I came up with in three years. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <I've, laughs> if you uh, want to know how, what that, why, why that is funny, uh, you can email me at ian.doonigan at mediasperformance.com.au. You can follow us at mediasconsulting.com.au. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Please hold the line uh, for a second. Um, but for everybody else, um, you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, or Google. And as I said, head over to mediasconsulting.com.au to get the background on this episode, blogs, and much, much more. Andrew, thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. Cheers. Really appreciate it.